Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hey audience, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. And today we're doing a slightly different format. We're doing a podcast plus a webinar and I have Dr. Glenn Mueller here, right? So Dr. Glenn is uh, someone I've been following for many, many years, looking at his real estate market cycle uh, studies. And he's a professor at University of Denver. He has been doing this for almost uh, 36 years, if I'm not mistaken, has gone through many, many different yeah. market cycle. Dr. Glenn, why don't you tell me some, tell our audience what, what I didn't cover in terms of uh, introducing yourself. Sure. So I've actually been in the real estate field for the past 45 years. Um, started out as a loan analyst at United Bank of Denver and by chance got put into the real estate group. After a couple of years, realized that uh, real estate People made a lot of money, went out and started my own construction and development companies and uh, built custom homes for about seven years and then decided that uh, I wanted to have a change and a different lifestyle. So I went back to school, got my PhD in real estate and started teaching at the University of Denver, got hired away by a big institutional investor, Prudential Real Estate Investors, and then on to uh, Jones Lang LaSalle and then started working on the security side with REITs, Real Estate Investment Trusts at uh, Leg Mason. I ran the research group there. And then one of my clients, Black Creek Group, invited me to come and head up uh, research for them. And I've been with them now for the past 15 years and at the same time uh, teaching as a full professor at the University of Denver. So I guess I'm a typical real estate type A personality running two jobs at the same time. But a lot of my research is focused on real estate market cycles, which is what we're going to talk about today. Yes, yes, correct. And real estate is very interesting because it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's very hard for us to make it into a very uh, analytical format. And when I look at your charts and the work that you do, you have really break it down to science, right? I mean, of course, definitely there's art in real estate, you know, but there's a lot of science to it as well. And it comes from years and years of uh, research, right? Like what you have done, right? And that's very important for people like us who are basically active uh, investors who are buying deals uh, day in, day out and uh, going through different market cycles. And it's also more important for people who have never gone through a full market cycle, right? Like even for me, I've not gone through a down cycle yet. And there's tons and tons of people have not gone through a down cycle. So we always wonder how does different cycle is impacted by different property types, right? Like a uh, you know, what you call as like industrial, uh, you know, self-storage, apartments, uh, office and retail, right? So, I mean, and a few other things. So, so this presentation that you're going to be doing uh, in, on the webinar and uh, on throughout the podcast, we're going to try to clarify some of the slides that uh, that's going to be covered here so that the uh, people who are listening to the podcast Correct. is going to be able to follow through as well. Although it's going to be difficult, I would so, advise you um, to look at the webinar you- as well. Right. Um, so if you'd like, if you want, I've got my slides ready to go. We could probably yeah. go to that yeah. and I can uh, start in. Let's start. I mean, I'm going to name this podcast State of the Union of Commercial Real Estate 
copy okay. that. So let's go through it. So throw, throw the word cycles in there someplace because I do real <laughs> estate cycles. So let me actually bring that to full screen size to make it easier to see. Is that is that clear for yeah, you? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Okay, great. So basically, uh, I believe that real estate is a delayed mirror of the economy. As the economy goes, so goes real estate. So when the economy is doing well, real estate does well. When the economy turns down, real estate lags by about a year. And then about a year after the economy starts to turn down, real estate will turn down. You can see that here in this first chart. And on the demand side of real estate, there are three key things we look at. The first one is population growth. The U.S. population is growing at nine-tenths of 1%. We are 330 million people, so we're actually growing by 3 million people every year in this country. And let's put that into simple real estate terms. That means that we need to build one city, complete city, the size of Denver, Colorado, which will actually hit 3 million people this year, to give them a place to eat, sleep, shop, work, play, pray, store things, etc. So here you can see GDP growth, the Great Recession in 09 and, and beginning of 2010 with negative GDP growth. Uh, and then it has rebounded and it's been running at this nice average of right around uh, just a little under, just a little over 2%. And the forecast is that that looks like it continues forward with a little bit of a dip here in late 2020. But to be honest, economists are always wrong. Um, their number is never perfectly accurate. And there's a fairly high probability that doesn't happen. The reason for that dip is actually the employment growth below, which again, you can see the a negative number back in 2009. Uh, it starts to recover and go positive in 2010 and has been running about 2%. And then you see the forecast for a slight decline back to down to close to zero in 2021. That's actually a mathematical calculation of the number of baby boomers like me uh, getting to retirement age of 65 versus the number of millennials who are just coming out of school. The only thing and one of the reasons I believe that that number is wrong is that most baby boomers like me, we enjoy what we do and we're not necessarily retiring. Uh, or if we do, within six months to a year, we're out with another job. It may be a totally different kind of job. Uh, I live up here in the mountains of Colorado, and a lot of my friends that retired are uh, working as ski school instructors or driving the shuttle bus, or uh, my wife is a host and tour guide at a Arapahoe area ski area. So there's, you know, so those people are still working. So that decline in employment growth sort of forecast the decline in GDP growth, but my guess is that doesn't happen. And a lot of economists now are saying maybe we're in the lower for longer term, as you probably all know. Um, we just hit uh, 10 years of economic expansion. So we're in the longest economic expansion in modern history. Um, and a lot of economists do say, well, it can't go past that. But I, I don't believe that because right now, the country in the world that's had the longest economic expansion is Australia, and they're in their 28th year of expansion with no recessions. So I believe that the way that we're set up with this more moderate growth um, is something that is potentially sustainable as we go along. Okay. So, so let me recap that because that's a very important point because there's a lot of... Uh notion out there that you know we are too long in expansion cycle you know we must come to an end uh, you know it's cyclic right so but what you're saying is the way the employment growth and the way that gdp growth right has become 
uh, moderate right now for the past what many how many years we have and that's a good thing so what you're saying is with that moderate growth we might be able to go longer on expansion cycle is that right right we're we're into we're, we're in we're at the beginning of the longest ever correct so when we talk about australia i mean um and i know it's one of the longest expansion cycle and and things just getting very expensive there is that the same case in australia were they like moderate growth for a very long time and that's how they're able to sustain it yes and what's driving the 0.9% population growth where is the growth coming from that is net new births over deaths plus legal immigration okay and so we're actually growing at a higher rate than that from illegal immigration as well but there are more people there's there's you know we're we're at we're at a very low unemployment rate at this point in time so anybody that wants a job basically can get a job okay. and um uh that, you know that's that's a good thing okay so you're going i'm going to ask about inflation and you are showing the inf- chart on right. inflation okay right. let's go so, to inflation right so on the you know on the flip side of the coin is as we look at about by the way we're talking about income producing real estate not homes not that home ownership okay so we're we're focusing on the income producing side of this as we go along so the two things that we look at so so we've got good demand as we put up new properties for people to use on the on the cost side inflation is running at again about 2% and has been uh since the great recession uh, when it was actually negative and that is expected to continue and then we look at interest rates and of course we are at actually i'm going to i'm going to jump ahead here to to a different graph um we're at a very low interest rate um as a matter of fact the lowest interest rates in 60 years um and in in income producing real estate commercial real estate um we don't we you you can't go out and get a 30 year mortgage on an office building mm-hmm. the longest you're going to see is 10 years so we we look at 10 year treasuries us treasuries as our benchmark and here you can see that 10 year treasuries and this graph's actually wrong they forecast it going up to 4% 10 year treasuries are running a little under 2% mm-hmm. so if you're going to go out and get a commercial loan you might get it at 10 year treasuries plus a 2% premium so that would be a today at 10 year treasuries are running right about 1718 so you'd be getting a 3.8% mm-hmm. 10 year loan on your property which is a very low interest rate hence good good return to equity on investment after after the loan amount okay so the chart that you showed is is basically a forecast but we are running much lower than the forecast i guess yes yep right. we and are and who came up with the forecast there every economist forecast what's going to happen uh the forecast that uh, we look at many times are the congressional budget office so if that's cbo.gov Got if it. you want to go get their stuff they do 10 year forecasts on gdp growth employment growth interest rates all kinds of different things so it's a very good place and it's free to go to go look at uh what's happening and just underneath it they've got a lot of different things just click on the economy one and all that information will and why do you think the economies are wrong why were they forecasting at 4% and we are sitting at like a- uh 1.71 uh it, it's a st- it's a statistical method called reversion to the mean got it. interest so rates over 60 years have averaged close to 6% so now that it's low it has to go back up got it got it right okay and every single year they've been forecasting within 2 years 4% and every year for the last 10 years they've been wrong last 10 years they've been wrong and yes. is there a chance for them to be continuously being wrong um again there's an old saying for economists 
forecast often. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because uh, every year people are forecasting the interest rates are going up or coming down when they, everybody's wrong all the time, right? So, yes. Um, and it's very important for interest rate for, for investors like, uh, you know, like us, like where we are predicting because we do exit cap rate and we are buying deals, you know, hoping on the, you know, of course, cash flow, but also there's market appreciation would be a, uh, which would be a bonus for us, right? So, right. that's why I'm asked. Okay. Right. Okay. So, let's actually go right to talking about real estate mm-hmm. and my market cycle analysis. So I believe there's really two cycles in real estate. The first one is the physical cycle, which is demand and supply for real estate. So people renting and space available for rent. And that drives the occupancy rate, which is just the inverse of vacancy. I like using occupancy and you'll see why here. Mm-hmm. And occupancy drives rent growth. So if my occupancies are up, which means there's more demand, my I can raise my rents. Right. If we're in a recession and occupancies go down, people aren't renting, landlords are going to drop their rents. Okay. And if I add occupancy and rent together, so if I get an increase in occupancy, in other words, I rent more space and I get an increase in rent, those two together will tell me how much income I'm going to get off my property. That's the physical cycle. The financial cycle talks about the price of real estate, and we're going to do that second and we're going to do it separately. Okay. So here's Here's my market cycle analysis, and you see that I've got four quadrants, just like the account, just like an economic cycle, a recovery, an expansion, a hypersupply, and a recession phase. There are 16 points on the cycle because historically real estate cycles have lasted 16 years. And so at the bottom, we've got obviously declining vacancy on the way up and increasing vacancy on the way down. We don't build much. There in the recovery phase, we build a lot in both the expansion and the hypersupply phase. And then we don't start anything, but we complete buildings that have been started in the recession phase. So uh, actually, we'll go to this slide. So the study that I've done and published that I get quoted on all the time is the fact that if you know where you are in the cycle, you'll know what kind of rent growth you might expect. So you can see here at the bottom, I don't know if my arrow is showing up here or not, but at the bottom of the cycle, points one and two, you've got negative rent growth. So landlords are dropping their rent, right? So if it was $10 a square foot last year and it's going down 3%, right? 3% of $10 is 30 cents or, you know, it's going to go down to, um, you know, 970, a square foot to rent. As we start to come up through the cycle and occupancies increase, you can see rent growing. And at position six, at the long-term average there, um, 0.6 is is on the long-term average dotted line. You can see that rent growth was 4%. And during this historic cycle time, inflation was running 4% then. So when you get to long-term average, you get basically the rate of inflation. Hmm. Then in the green shaded area here, which is the expansion phase, you can see rents really rising quickly uh, to a peak and a high of 12.5% at position 10. Then when we hit the peak of the cycle, which is the highest level of occupancy, after that, things rent still grows positively, but it starts to decelerate or slow down back to around inflation at 0.14 and then low and negative again at the bottom. And then one other thing to notice here is that 0.8 on the cycle is green, And because that is the cost feasible rent level. Hmm. And by that, I mean that 
Um, if it costs $400 a square foot to build a new office building here in Denver, and investors are looking for a 10% rate of return on that $400 investment, 10% of 400 is $40 a square foot. So rents in the market have to hit 40 before we can cost justify building the new building. Make sense? Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So every quarter, I look at the major property types, look at that demand and supply, look at the occupancy levels. And as you can see today, um, five major property types, office, downtown or suburban office uh, is at 0.6, downtown office is at 0.8, retail, which will surprise everybody at 0.9, industrial at 0.10, uh, and retail, uh, retail industrial warehouse up at peak occupancy rates. And the only property type that's over the top into hyper supply is apartment. And apartment is there not because of um, a decline in demand. We've got all these millennials coming out of school. And so every year demand is going up for apartments, but we're just overbuilding it a little bit. So for my company and for other investors, what I do is I analyze the uh, 54 largest cities in the United States and where they are in their cycle. And as you can see here, um, they're kind of spread up because demand and supply is very local in nature, right? In other words, what's happening in a New York office, which is driven by the financial sector and the stock market, is going to be different from what's happening in Boston or Chicago or New York or any other city. So you can look at the, the, the companies that are there, the industry that's driving the growth. And what you see here is national average at 0.8, but some markets moving up the cycle and some markets over the top. And I'll give a quick example here. We've got two markets that are in the hyper supply phase, Austin and Houston, both in Texas. And this for office, Austin right? market office is driven time. by technology companies. A lot of tech people, uh, a lot of tech companies like being there because they can hire young people that want to live in Austin. It's a cool city. Yeah, Actually, I, number one growth I'm city. In, I'm in Austin, yes. Right. So it is really know. cool to live here. <laughs> and so... And so what's happening there is, since that's been going on for a few years, mm -hmm. the developers are putting up just a little bit more space than you need. So the occupancy rate is starting to come down just a little bit because there's too much space there. So that's a, question, that's a, that's a situation of too much supply. Houston is exactly the opposite. It's a case of declining demand because the oil industry is driving Houston and with low, ga uh, and with low gas prices, the amount of exploration and other things going on has dropped off and they've laid people off. So that's a position of declining demand. So since you're in Austin, let's watch Austin as we look at this. So that's, mm -hmm. that's where offices. Here's where industrial is. Mm -hmm. So warehouse space, again, Austin is just one point over the top. A lot of markets are at their peak. Demand for industrial warehouse space has been very strong because of Amazon and people buying things online. So we've got a huge demand growth on the industrial side. And there are some cities, again, where it's easy to build. So we're overbuilding just a little bit. Okay. Now we look at the apartment market and Austin is at the top at the peak point in 11 because you aren't putting up apartments fast enough for all these millennials moving in. But you look at there's a lot of other markets where they are putting up a, a little bit too much space. In other words, we're oversupplying almost half the market. So the national average is just a little over the top. Every time I talk to developers, I'd say, 
If you just back off on building apartments by about 10% of what's being built, you'll come right back into balance and be back at peak equilibrium 0.11. When we look at retail, you can see that the majority of the cities are at peak and Austin is there as well, um, which is the one surprising thing because everybody hears about retailers going out of business. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. Okay. And then finally, hotels. Here you can see that hotels, uh, uh, the majority are in the expansion phase with some over the top. And again, Austin, you're oversupplying by just a little bit. Okay. So what I want to do now is jump to and look at the historic cycles. As you said, you haven't been through a full cycle yet. Mm -hmm. Well, here we're going to go back to 1982. And that's a point in time at which I was building. Uh, and you can see that occupancies in office were very high. Mm -hmm. They came down and bottomed out in uh, in the early 1990s with a small recession, and we'd actually over oversupplied a lot. They peaked in 2000 with the technology boom. They bottomed in 2002 and three with the technology bubble bursting. Came up to a lower peak in 2006 and seven uh, as the economy was doing well. Bottomed out in the Great Recession in 2010, and today have come back and are reaching a kind of a lower level equilibrium occupancy level than we've seen in previous times. Uh, but it looks like it's going to last for at least another two or three years. So the other line that you see here is the rent growth line. And you can see that those two are very highly correlated. As a matter of fact, they're correlated by almost 80%. So if occupancies are going up, rents are going up. If occupancies are going to go down, rents are going to go down. Pretty simple and straightforward to look at. So let's look at my forecast. And here's the forecast, and it looks very much like the monitor. Uh, and you can see that uh, markets are, uh, again, majority in the, in the uh, expansion phase. Austin, as you can see there, is uh, in the hypersupply phase at position 13. And again, that's because I'm forecasting that you're just, you got a lot of new properties coming online. So your occupancy level is actually going to fall a little bit uh, in the coming year. Okay. If we look at industrial, you see basically the exact same cycle of occupancies and rent growth. And we've got this really nice equilibrium that happened back in the mid 90s and another one that's happening today. Rent growth has been really high in industrial because of the, I call it the Amazon effect, uh, you know, up at 7%, more than double the rate of inflation. And we expect that to kind of work its way back down over the next few years back to kind of a more normal. You know, by 2017, we expect to see kind of inflation type uh, things there. So again, half the markets at peak equilibrium, the other half building just a little bit too much, but that's the way it is. And uh, Austin, again, just one point over the top. Oh, one of the things is you notice I've got some numbers after each city. And those numbers tell you how if the city has moved from the previous quarter. Got so, it. for instance, below Austin there, you've got Cincinnati at a plus one. So, Cincinnati was at peak at number 11, and its occupancy has dropped enough for me to move it forward to position 12. So, it. its rent growth is going to be decelerated. And, and the bolded city are the bigger cities. Right. Okay, yeah. So, the bolded cities make up uh, – one of the things I found was there's big concentrations. So, in each of the different property types – um, there's anywhere between uh, 11 and 14 cities that make up 50% mm -hmm. of all the square footage in all 54 of these markets. 
So what city is bolded may not be the same in each case. So like Riverside is here in the industrial, but it's not in any of the others. Las Vegas will be in hotels, but it's not it's not a big city for office or any of the other properties. Okay. When we look at apartments, you can see that we actually hit a peak in occupancy back in 2009. Yeah, we, we, we had a peak back in 2014. It looks like we hit another peak here in 2019. But because of the overbuilt, we slowed that things down a little bit. But going forward, we just have a lot of it in the pipeline. And so we're going to overbuild it, it looks like, for the next three or four years. And hence, rent growth, which was as high as 5% back in 2015, has dropped off. And in 2019, I think it's going to run about 2.5%. So, but uh, looking at that chart, you're predicting 2019 after 2019, rent growth is going to slow down because of the oversupply? stage yes yep Got exactly it. right and does it matter on which class apartment is it which location which city tertiary primary market oh well so here's here's the cities for apartments and you can see austin i think is still at its peak you're not putting up quite enough most of the other cities are in that hyper supply phase Got right it. where they're putting up a little too much and so their occupancy levels are dropping denver had a number of years of eight percent rent growth And because we're overbuilding, and you can see Denver way over, uh, you know, further down the cycle there um, at uh, position 13, our rent growth now is only running about 3%. Okay. Got it. So, so for example, like the city on the hyper supply, I mean, going to the recession on the point 14, right? So what you're looking at is you're looking at the supply that's coming into that city and looking at the demand for that city. And that's where you're, de- you're determining the point uh, 14. For that particular city. Right? That's right. Yep. Because when I combine supply and demand, I can then forecast the occupancy level. Got okay? it. Got it. So, right. so in other words, in those cities of Memphis, Miami, Orlando, and San Jose, mm-hmm. I don't expect them to get anything more than inflation, which is right about 2%. Oh, uh, you mean rent growth right about 2%? Right. Right. So their rent growth okay. is only going to match inflation. So at point 14, it's supposed to be de-accelerating rent growth, right? And, and recession, it should be like almost negative. 12, 13, and 14 are decelerating rent growth. And okay. point 14 is when rent growth should only be running at the rate of inflation, which if you remember back to your economics class, we have nominal inflation mm-hmm. and real infl- or nominal growth and real growth. Mm-hmm. And all that is is nominal growth if rents... Uh, if, if rents go uh, up or if, if something if the price of something goes up, that's inflation, right? So mm-hmm. if we have 2% inflation, if you've got like GDP growing at 3%, you ta- that's nominal GDP growth. So 3% nominal GDP growth, subtract inflation of 2% and real GDP growth is 1%. Got it. So what about at point 11, the cities who are estimated to be at the final phase of expansion, still an expansion, where how, what is the percentage of expectation of rent growth for that kind of cities? Um, well, it will vary by city, but it's probably going to be, well, let's back up one slide there. And when you're, when you're at peak occupancy, you've seen historic rent growth as much as here's four and a half, here's almost 5%. This little peak here is at 3%. Okay. Mm-hmm. So okay. again, and, and I do this model that you see here, individually for each city okay okay how do we get access to that data to get a rent growth prediction for each city so well that's that's what researchers do is we model and project things okay. and i get my i get my historic data from costar 
Okay. The company that does all the major property types. And I get supply information, demand information, occupancy levels, rent growths, so I can model every city. But your model of forecast is not available for public consumption, right? That's mainly for your well, research, I guess. This is my forecast report that you're looking at here. Okay. And my regular market cycle report, I give away free. It's actually on our website at the University of Denver. So if you go to du.edu, Mm-hmm. And then slash Burns School. I'm in the Franklin L. Burns School of Real Estate. Scroll to the bottom of the page and you'll see my market cycle forecast. So you can get those for free. Got it. We um, sell a subscription to my forecast report. It comes out four times a year. It's only $1,000. And that money goes into a fund to support research on real estate and sustainability. Got it. Got it. So my question is on a specific city. For example, I'm buying a deal in, um, you know, Memphis, right? Uh, right. And I'm trying to do a five-year projection on my performer to show it to my investors and to raise money for it, right? So usually a lot of people use this 3% or 2% rent growth for the next five years. But what right. you're saying is that's not correct, right? Because that's not how and, it's being forecasted. Yeah, they, they need to take a look at the city where, where it is in its cycle and it might be doing better. It might be doing worse than that. So how do we get that number rather than saying three or 2% blindly? Is there a place where we can go and say it's 3% in the next one year, but after that, it's going to be 1% the year two or second year or third year. Sure. Yep. Um, so CoStar, you can subscribe to CoStar. Okay. And they do, they do, uh, projections on all this stuff, city by city, property okay. type by property. Type. Oh, of course, that do projection. Okay, got it, got it. Okay. Um, also, Jones Lang LaSalle um, has their own um, research and forecasting group, so you can go there as well. Okay. For your individual investors who probably aren't, you know, doing enough to, um, uh, you know, spend that kind of money on research, um, most of them are probably working with a broker when they're looking to purchase properties. Um, operate the properties, lease the properties, et cetera. When they're talking to a broker, they should ask, do you have CoStar access for the, for your city and your property type? Yeah. And the broker is allowed to share that information and those forecasts with them. Got it. Got That's it. And what about the cap rate? I mean, when we talk about rent growth, deaccelerating, right. you know, it's also meaning a cap rate being expanding, right? So is that place? Okay. Well, Okay, so we're almost there. Let me okay. let me just finish this, and then we'll jump right over okay. to Sounds the financial good. cycle. Okay, here's retail, and the key thing here is that you can see that we are at the highest level of occupancy ever in retail. People go, that doesn't make sense. You got all these companies going out of business and everything else. Right. So Sears is going out of business. One of my students' family owns a mall in Macon, Georgia, and uh, Sears goes out of business. They open up the center roof of the building. On one side, they put in an experience retail, two restaurants, a movie theater, and an escape room. On the other side, they're building four stories of apartments on top of the space. So they're actually going to have higher occupancy and rent uh, going forward. We're replacing these uh, department stores with experience retail. And remember supply, we're not building a lot of new retail, number one but we're also repurposing a lot of retail. So many times a retail center that's not working, convert it to office space. Or uh, today, Amazon's trying to get that last mile delivery to you on the same day, convert that into close-in warehouse space where you can you know, deliver to someone the same day. So retail is doing well because it's got a low level of demand growth. It does have some, but it has an even lower level of supply growth, hence the high occupancy rate. 
Okay. But you can see that the rent growth is really pretty low too. It's only, you know, one and 2% going forward. So retail is more of a play of, uh, you know, people have given up on retail and there's not many people building and, but it's still a demand there. That's why it's the occupancy is much higher. Right. So again, most of the market's at the peak and then hotels, we are again at the highest occupancy rate um, we've ever seen. That's because millennials like experiences versus things. So they're doing a lot more travel. Um, and uh, we're in the process because hotels are extremely profitable at that high occupancy rate. We're seeing a lot more new hotels being built. So a lot of markets kind of heading over the top and uh, Austin being one of those where you're actually putting up a lot of new hotels. So um, when, you know, you think about it, the one property type that's the best in Austin is actually apartments at this point, highest occupancy, highest rent growth. So that's the income side of real estate. All we talked about is occupancies and rent growth. How much income can I get? Yes. Now let's talk about the financial cycle and it's capital flows that drive the prices. And we look at that as cap rates. So the blue line's the real estate cycle, the black line's the capital flow cycle, and it should work as when things aren't very good, not much capital. The line's flat there at the bottom. As things get better, capital goes up. The highest rate of growth is when we go through that 0.8, now yellow, where we reach cost feasible rents. Capital flow peaks out in the hyper supply phase and then drops off very quickly. Now, remember that we've got two types of capital flowing into real estate. The green shaded area up here is, is capital flows to existing properties. So if you buy a property from me for a higher price than I paid, that's more capital flow. The other capital flow at the bottom is capital flows to new construction, adding more buildings in. So producing more properties. Okay. Real estate, I consider it a separate asset class. So we've got stocks, equities, bonds, and commercial income producing real estate. It's about 20% of the marketplace. So for me, as I talk to and have worked with for 25 years institutional investors, they should have a separate allocation of real estate. You should have a separate allocation of real estate in your retirement account. If you can only do public equities, buy REITs. Directly, you can buy into funds or you can actually own properties yourself. But remember, when you buy a property, you just bought a business. You've got to operate it. You've got to rent it. You've got to take care of it. You got to maintain it, pay the taxes, you're operating a business. Okay. So when we look back over history, here's, here's the history of 10 year treasuries. You can see it going from 2% back in the 50s to 15% in 1982 to today back to 2% with a forecast that it's going to go up. But of course, for the last 10 years, that's exactly what that forecast has looked like. And it's always been wrong. We've been running in the 2% range since the year 2010. Notice the total return between 1981 and 2017, whoops, is 8.4%. That's because as interest rates go down, bond values go up, your bonds appreciate. But if you think bonds are a good place to be today, go to the left-hand side and when you go from two to the long-term average of 5.8, the total return is only 1.9 because if you bought a bond at a 2% interest rate, a $1,000 bond at 2% and interest rates go to four and you want to sell that bond, the new buyer is going to want a 4% yield. So they're going to give you $500 instead of a thousand for that bond. So you're going to lose money on your bond. So that's, that's why today bonds kind of don't make any sense. Real estate versus stocks and bonds. It's only had five years of negative returns versus over 20 for both stocks and bonds. 
And it is capital flowing, that money coming in that makes a difference. So here's a company, Real Capital Analytics, that collects data on every commercial real estate transaction in the US over $2.5 million. Bars go up, the bars go down. And their price index, which is along the top there, you can see follows that pretty closely, doesn't it? Okay. So as more people buy, prices go up. When people back off, like during the Great Recession of 2009, prices come down. Okay. Is that the international money coming in or is that local money coming in or it's just a oh, quantitative, man, quantitative easing? I will happening. be answering that question in two slides. Okay. okay. I'm jumping ahead, I guess. When we, when we look at the cap rate, which is the simple way to describe that, it's like a bond yield or a cash on cash return. Back in 2001, cap rates were around 8 to 9%. Mm-hmm. And then as prices went up, cap rates dropped to a low in 2007 of around 6 to 7%. Great recession happened, property prices drop, cap rates go back up. So you're getting a better cash yield when you buy. Since then, cap rates have been coming down and they're down at a low of mainly in the 65 to 7% range, except for apartments, which are at 55 yeah. And of course, hotels are higher because they're riskier at eight. And everybody says, well, so interest rates have to go up, therefore cap rates have to go up. Mm-hmm. Not true. All the historic studies done, and I've done some myself, show that the correlation between interest rates and cap rates is no more than about 20%. That's not what drives it. It's capital flow. And as a matter of fact, just came from a conference where two different real estate economists say, we expect cap rates to go even lower next year because there's so much money out there around the world trying to find yield, trying to find income. And bonds don't have it today. The U.S. stock market, the S&P 500 dividend yield is 1.2%. The 10-year treasury, which is risk-free, is 1.7%. Corporate bonds are running around 3 to 3.5%. And you can buy into properties earning 6 So that's quite different, isn't it? So, so what you're saying is the cap rate is going to continue. I mean, your prediction is cap rate is going to continue to go down in apartments and any... Is it all asset cap, classes? Cap, cap rates are most likely going to be staying about where they are or coming, and it depends upon the property type, or coming down just a little bit. They probably won't go down in retail because people don't believe that retail is coming back yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one way to look at this is take the risk-free rate of the 10-year treasury, okay. ask how much additional yield income am I going to get over that risk-free rate of the 10-year treasury? So that's the spread above the 10-year treasury. Here, you can see that the spread was 375 back in 2001. It dropped down to only 150 basis points in 2007. But today, you're getting somewhere between 275 and 600 points Hmm. over the 10-year treasury for taking that additional risk of investing in real estate. So from that standpoint, real estate looks like a very strong buy as an investment. And because of that, what we see is Real Capital Analytics collects data from all over the world. And this shows money going from one country to another. So at the top, you see the United States in 2018, we don't have the 2019 yet numbers yet, sorry, into Spain, put $11 billion into Spain. That was 15% higher than the previous year because they believe the Spanish economy has finally figured itself out and is going well. The next one was France coming into the United States with money, $8.8 billion of French investors buying U.S. real estate. The next one, United States going to the UK, 7.9 
billion dollars. That's a 20% decrease. Why do you think it went down? Because of the Brexit? <laughs> yes. Everybody <laughs> said into a Brexit. When right? Brexit happens, the economy in England will go down. And hence, if the economy slows, occupancy rates will go down and rent rates will drop. Okay. So you can see that money moves around the world. And the most expensive property in the United States today would be a class A office building in downtown New York City. It will go for a 3.8% cap rate. In London, the same size class A office building will go for a 2% cap rate. Got it. In Tokyo or Singapore, a class A office building will go for a 1% cap rate. So an English investor looks at the US and says, hey, I can buy a top quality property for half price. And a uh, Asian investor goes, wow, I can buy a property in the US for a quarter of the cost in Asia. So we are the largest economy in the world. We're the safest economy. We have good laws that protect investors. In China, you could invest there, but the government, since it's communist, could next year decide that, oh, we own everything anyway. We're taking it away from you. So capital is flowing in the United States, and I believe that keeps prices high and cap rates low. What about this uh, trade war with China? I mean, I know it's a bit cooling down, but it's cooling down and heating up. And right. So how is the, that going to be impacting the uh, money flow to the U.S.? Well, um, we've already hit the first level of agreement on it, and um, it certainly did not hurt the um, you know our economy in any major way. If you look here uh, down at number seven, China and the United States, $8.375 billion, up 8% back in 2018 when it was first in process and our president was threatening, right? Mm -hmm. Chinese investors in the United States went up, not down. Right. Why? Because Chinese investors were trying to get their money out of their country where they thought it might slow down and move it into our country or where it was safer, okay? Yep. So, so this is a very awesome slide because it shows all where all the money flows in the world and Right. Clearly see that a lot of money coming to the, to the U.S., which is important for capital flow to correct uh, real estate right. prices. Right. Okay. Right. So here's a slide from NARIT, the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts. You can find this on their website. And they're showing historic cycles at, at being 17 years long. So the first cycle there from 1972, which is when they start having data through 1989, the green line, the total average return per year. Uh, for publicly traded REITs was 13.9%. Uh, the next cycle, 1989 through 2007, just before our Great Recession, total return was over 14% a year. And here we are kind of halfway through the next cycle, um, 10 years in. And so far, the average return has been 3.9, but that's because of that big drop during the Great Recession, and you had to recover the money that you lost. So I believe we're kind of mid-cycle and fair amount of expansion to go. So we are not going to die of old age, I guess, right? Not because of the cycle is too long and we are due for a correction. Correct. That's what Correct. Okay. So, so that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. If you want, we can do a quick summary or any other questions you have. I have I, yeah, I have a few, a few questions. So in terms of development, right? So in this market cycle, let's say, for example, in apartments, right? So if you look at the apartment, the, the market cycle that you put in, we are in hyper supply. I mean, of course, you said we have like 10% additional supply. It's not because there's no demand. But is this the right time to do development? Because I saw somewhere in your studies that the best time to start your development is 75% on the expansion cycle, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I would, I would love to be developing at points... 
six, seven, eight on the cycle. That's okay. that's so the that's 0.6 or 67% of the whole cycle on the on the upward trend before it reached the equilibrium, right? Well, in other words, go back to my cycle graph and we want to be let's go to the apartment one as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, I would like to be I would like to be developing at point 0.678 and maybe 9 in the cycle. What's happening so, is a lot of people are are over here putting up new properties at 12, 13, 14. So right now, I mean, if your chart shows the apartments at the 13, which means it's not the best time to really do development, I guess, right? Because no. you might be entering. Correct. And what about, uh, you know, people who, I mean, some of the, you know, investors who are doing like, you know, bridge loans, right? Or long-term loans. I mean, there's pro and con in both, but what would you recommend in this market cycle? Well, when you say a long-term note, you mean giving a mortgage on a property? Yeah, getting a mortgage with, uh, you know, agency debt or... Right. Fixed rate, long term well, versus a bridge loan, which is a short term uh, financing. So bridge loans are basically taking the risk that property is being developed or redeveloped and that it will be successful upon completion. Whereas a long term mortgage, you get the first money. So the rents that come in have to be high enough to pay uh, to pay your mortgage payment. And if there's nothing left over, then the invest equity investors aren't making any you know return in those years. You can buy an apartment and it most likely is going to cash flow okay, but it's a full-time job to manage a big property, uh, make sure it's done right, uh, finance it properly and everything else. That's why pretty much every university in the country today has a real estate program. We're actually at University of Denver, the second oldest real estate program in the country started in 1938. We have both an undergraduate, a graduate and an executive online program. So you can you know, be at home and get your master's degree in real estate from us. Got it. Got it. Wow, really? <laughs> I should probably look at that. But the other question I have, especially on this chart, why is it not symmetrical? I mean, I know during the recovery and expansion, it's just a longer cycle. And after that, like a slide down. Right. You know, I right. Recession. Great question. That's because historically, we've had 11 years of up cycle and only three or four years of a down cycle. As a matter of fact, I'll go back to one of the slides that I bounce past earlier on, and that is this. Here you can see previous economic cycles. They last anywhere from five to 10 years historically, and recessions are normally one to two years long. The Great Recession at two and a half years was the longest recession that we've seen since the Great Depression uh, in the 1920s. Got it. Got it. So, and what about the the industrial office and um, other property types? Uh, what do you think would thrive uh, in the next, I mean, apart, other than apartments, right? Among all these property types, what would be the best property type to invest for the next you know, five years, I would say, from your, from your perspective? Um, here's the chart. Office has got the longest run in the expansion cycle, followed by retail uh, power centers. It, it doesn't mean that stuff can't sit at the top for a long time, too. So right. if the economy keeps going, I believe we've got a good five-year run of demand for industrial space going forward. Got it. But is office being driven by uh, some factor? I mean, I, I mean, tech, like technology, right? I mean, a lot of technology people work from home, too, right? So I'm, I'm not sure where the drive is coming from for office. Basically, more and more of the jobs in the United States are office-using jobs. And okay. people go cra- stir crazy sitting at home and we're social animals. Uh, and so being together with other people 
And that social interaction uh, actually benefits the work every company. That's why we work when you start a company instead of working out of your garage, you can now go and rent some WeWork space on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Uh, they charge you plenty for it, but now you've got a space to be in all the amenities that are necessary there. There's a receptionist, there's copy machines, there's all the different things that you need to be successful, you know, collaboration, you know, conference rooms, all those kinds of things. So most new companies start out by going to, you know, short-term office rental space. Last year, that was 10% of the demand in office. Got it. And what about the Amazon effect? Is that just on the industrial? Because I read somewhere right. where they own like 25% of the... Last year... Amazon rented 25% of all warehouse space, new warehouse space rented in the United States. That's how much they're growing. They opened a 1 million square foot warehouse north of Denver and hired 1,500 people. What about this uh, boom in marijuana and all that happening on some of the coastal cities? Is that impacting any of these uh, property types? The I'm sorry, the... Like they have uh, this marijuana, right? Like, you know, or like medical marijuana and... Uh, so, yeah, well, Colorado was one of the first and it created huge demand for warehouse space here in Denver and drove our rents from $3 to $6 over a two-year period. I can see we went to basically 100%. All the old crappy warehouse got rented up to grow marijuana. <laughs> and since we were one of the first states, marijuana tourism became very big. Now that other states are picking it up, less people are coming. And we've had a couple of marijuana companies go out of business. And so all of a sudden, and we built a lot of new space for them. And so now we're in the hyper supply phase because that economic base industry in Denver is shrinking. Got it, got it. What would you advise an investor, let's say for example, in a, let's say for example, in an apartment investor, right? Who are you know more on the hyper supply stage right now, what would you advise that person to be cautious of uh, as we move forward for the next five years? Do we keep, keep on buying or do you want to be more defensive? Well, if you believe that there is a recession coming, then what you want to do is have what we call defensive assets. You want to have the highest, you, you want to be in the best markets, the highest, you know, the, the bigger markets like the ones that I show and the ones that I have in bold and italics. You want to be in higher quality properties that can attract and retain tenants. And you wanna try and get the longest term leases you can get to bridge you through the next down cycle. Got it, got it. What about tertiary market? Is it is it a good idea to go into tertiary market looking for yield? Because I know some of the tertiary market is, you know, they have a lot more yield, right? It's compared right. to the big cities. Yes, but you have to be careful and very selective. You need to look at what is the economic base industry that's driving the growth in that market, okay? Okay. So, for instance, you know, an economic-based industry produces a good or service. It exports outside of the local market that brings money in. So, in Detroit, Michigan, for decades, it was auto. If the auto industry did well, so did, uh, you know, so did Detroit. When the auto industry turned down and we got a lot more foreign competition, Detroit became pretty much a ghost town. Now, you got a billionaire tech giant who came in and started buying up a bunch of office space in Detroit to run his company out of at next to nothing and hire people in saying, come here and live. And oh, by the way, you can go buy a new house. You can go buy an existing house here in Detroit for like 10 or $20,000. So instead of spending $3,000 or $4,000 in San Francisco in rent, you can have a mortgage that's only a couple hundred bucks a month. Oh. <laughs> so, so the, you know, so so Detroit is starting to turn around because of a new economic base industry. This, you know, this tech 
company, uh, you know, creating demand for office. And when you create demand for employment, then people buy things. So retail goes up, you know, demand for rental goes up. It just, it moves everything up. Employment growth is the number one key thing to look at for demand for real estate. Got it. Got it. What about some of the government controls, like, um, like rent control in some of the cities, uh, some of the states that's happening right now, how is that going to be impacting the, uh, the cap right. rate and the rent growth? In, in right. Uh, so rent control is the government interfering with the free market. And it has shown that when that happens, it severely restricts supply because no one wants to build if they're going to end up with rent control on their property where they can't raise rents uh, to at least meet inflation. And so every place where uh, that kind of stuff is coming into play, investors aren't buying and property prices are going flat. It in the long term will hurt the market. They'll, it will create exactly the opposite. They're saying, oh, we're trying to make apartments more affordable for people. Well, it does just the opposite. The people that are there end up with a lower rent and then they sit on it even when they now have a good job. And I'll give you an example. I have a good friend who owns an apartment building in San Francisco. He has four of his 20 units are rent controlled. One of the people in it was a guy that when he got in, he was in school. Now he is a very wealthy person and he continues since he, since he had it, uh, it can't be released. Um, he gets, his rent is less than 25% of what market would be on his property. And he's there maybe one or two nights a month. And my friend keeps asking, why are you, why you, why do you rent this for the month when you're only here two nights? And he goes, because it's cheaper than a hotel. So it's, it's bad government policy in my personal opinion. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? For investors like us. So, does that mean some of the cities which doesn't have rent control will have a lot more price run up because a lot of people want to be investing in in uh, like, for example, in Texas or maybe Florida, right, which doesn't have a lot of. Uh, I mean, a lot of states doesn't have rent control. Would that mean that a lot of people from the east coast or west coast will be investing more on on these states? Potentially, yes. Okay. Okay, so I think I, I covered most of the questions that was asked in the Facebook group. Uh, if if uh, audience and listeners, you guys want to join this multifamily investors group in Facebook, we have almost four thousand people there, and and uh, we are going to we are recording this as a podcast and a webinar, so you should be able to uh, get the webinar as well as you register. So, Doctor Glenn, um, how do people get hold of you and uh, get in touch with you and with your work? I, I believe you mentioned it. Halfway through, but uh, you want to right? Yeah, so they can go to the University of Denver website, which is du.edu, and then forward slash uh, Burns B U R N S School, and uh, scroll to the bottom, and they'll be able to see my cycle reports there. And there's, you know, I've got my profile and all the other information there. That's the easiest way to do it. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming into the show and doing the webinar as well. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. Have a blessed day. Have a good day. Bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audio book completely free along with other valuable resources by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. 
Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.